Howdy folks, welcome back to Well Sportsman Show, and today I have the long-awaited Alaska recap episode. I left you guys on a cliffhanger there in early May when I left. Uh, I first pretty much said, this is what I'm going to do. I shot a turkey, and off I go. Now, it's time to fill you guys in on what all happened in Alaska. It was a crazy ride. I was there for three and a half months. I had got home late August 17th. Um, I started school the 21st, so I've been kind of busy these first few weeks. Uh, for one, getting ready for the bow hunting archery, you know, deer season coming up, uh, which I'll be participating in for the first time this fall. Very excited about that, by the way. And uh, overall, dialing in school and getting back on the water. And I'll talk a little bit about that uh, towards the end about what I've been doing here. But I think it's time to talk about Alaska. You guys have been wanting this episode for quite some time. So... Let's get into it. So I was in Seward, Alaska for the last three and a half months, and my job description was a deckhand. That's, uh, that was my title, and pretty much all I did was make sure clients have a good time. I had to be knowledgeable about fishing to some degree because I was in charge of uh, maintaining rods, reels, cleaning fish, killing fish, bleeding them out, um, and overall preparing the fish for the clients to take um so they would catch the fish on the boat and by the time we hit the dock all of their fish would be bagged up ready for them to take to the processor where they would get further packaged froze shipped uh or transported in some other way to those clients back usually back to the lower 48 uh we did have quite a few clients that would take their own and we had a military base in town and they would process them that way or they would uh just take them because they were locals um it was a lot more common to have locals earlier in the season so may june and sometimes early july um around the beginning of salmon season we also had another flurry of a lot of native alaskans on the boat and overall um a lot of the native alaskans they were they were all really cool because they had a different perspective on things you know i've lived in minnesota my whole life and i thought we had cold winters but as soon as you talk to somebody who's lived anchorage or whole or not anchorage fairbanks her whole life you really get a different perspective on what a brutal winter is. Uh, you know, you're talking not too many hours of daylight every day, cold. Um, so coastal Alaska, something that's kind of unique about them is because they're right next to the ocean, they actually have pretty mild winters. Granted, they get a lot of precipitation because of that humidity and relative kind of, you know, area right next to the ocean. That's a lot of water coming up. So they get quite a bit of precipitation. But overall, because that ocean never freezes, at least where I was, uh, they actually have pretty mild winters compared to what we have here in Minnesota. Something we experienced a lot of in Alaska this year was rough water. Uh, this season was one of the coldest, roughest, windiest, wettest seasons out there. Um, it was a very slow start because that weather was so bad. We had more cancellations in May and June that than what usually is accounted for in a full season up there. Um, so it was a very, very nasty year to have my first year up there. But you make the best of it. You just keep going. You got one job. Show up to the boat every day. That was my job. Uh, so there's no, you can complain about it all you want. But at the end of the day, you really can't because that's where you make your money. That's you're having fun. You know, you're not gaining anything. You're not gaining any experience by sitting in the bunkhouse all day. Uh, you know, you're, you're not gaining anything by just 
walk around town because it's too crappy to go hiking or fishing or anything like that. So that was a little bit of a bummer. Um, I spent my first week in Alaska really getting everything with the boat ready. So we were polishing the boat, uh, polishing rails, waxing the boat, cleaning windows, really in-depth stuff uh, that would kind of get us through the season. We do all that stuff before the season. That way we don't have to do it during. Um, just keeps it, it helps us out a little bit, just especially waxing the boat. Once we wax the boat, cleaning it was a breeze. And you can notice that towards the end of the season, that wax is starting to wear off and cleaning the boat got a lot harder. And that's just a protective layer uh, to keep blood, guts, uh, and anything else that could stain the stain the cabin or the walls of the boat uh, clean. That was easily the worst part about my job was keeping the boat clean. Uh, every day we would come back to the dock and I would have between a half hour to a three hour clean on the boat. And, you know, after you've been on the water for 11, 12 hours, that's about the last thing you want to do. Um, and some days, you know, we'd get back to the dock later with clients because we hadn't gotten their limits and we wanted to go that extra mile to make things right and get them at least some fish. So, um, our days usually were between 13 to 16 hours. Um, and we did this seven days a week when it was busy enough. So we started out May and June, just really taking all we could get. And about the longest week I had during May and June was five days a week. But as soon as salmon season rolled around, we were fishing seven days a week. And the reason for that is halibut season was closed, or you could not fish for halibut on a charter uh, Tuesdays or Wednesdays in my time up there. Uh, and that's, they started that in like June. And the main reason is just give halibut a break, reduce how many we're harvesting, and overall, I think that's about it. It's just uh, a regulatory thing. Uh, you know, halibut are one of those federally federally protected species uh, that are, you know, people pay a lot of attention to them. They're very high-dollar fish, uh, very sought after. So there's a lot of resources up there that's going to kind of help them out, and that's one of them. So our my gear when I was on the boat was uh, Grunin's rainwear. Uh, you got to have... You got to have Grunin's, and that was like the thick PVC coated stuff. We had so many bad days where you get soaked from not the rain, but from water coming up and over the side of the rails. Um, there's one time in particular comes to bell or comes to mind. I was cleaning fish one day and our table was kind of situated from the fish box, which is in the middle of the boat. Oh, I need to take a step back. The boat I was on um, was a 50 foot fiberglass boat single hull uh, a very popular boat design called the delta up there and they have this fish box in the middle of the back deck this big middle cabin in the middle and then they kind of had a little walkway on the outsides of the boat and that went to the bow where usually there'd be the anchor set up and uh, there'd be a door up in the wheelhouse so once you're in the cabin you could either walk up to the wheelhouse or walk down to the bunker room um Granted, they're really steep steps, and there wasn't really a whole lot of room up there. But that wheelhouse is kind of like our office, or it should have been. Um, and then the bunk room was just for clients to sleep, store bags, stuff like that. Keep it out of the way. Um, but they were nice boats, older boats. Uh, the one I was on was like a 1970-something. Um, they've lasted a really long time. All those Deltas have been around a long time, and they just they last. So people really enjoy them. But anyway... Uh, back to me cleaning fish. So I was cleaning fish and I faced the front of the boat because our table is on the starboard or right side of the boat. 
and it was a rough day. And this one wave, it was particularly big, slammed into the side of the boat, came up and over the rail, and just pushed into me like it hit me like a, a freight train, and it just you know hit me right in the chest. Big wave. Um, if I was not hanging onto the table, it would have knocked me flat over. And I had my grunnins on, my heavy grunnins, and I stayed dry. I did not get wet at all from that wave. You know that almost knocked me over. Uh, and that's a statement because I'm a short guy. I'm five foot five, uh, built, built pretty pretty stout and wide. So it did not uh, knock me over. But overall. You have to have rain gear. You know, we dealt with rain almost every day. Um, there's very few days where we did not get rain. So I kind of had a lighter rain jacket for those lighter rains and mists. And then I had that heavier set of bibs and jacket for, you know, those really heavy rain days. The really rough days were getting more wet from water coming over the side of the boat. Um, but that was just kind of the day. You know, I really don't like rain. But you have that really heavy ring gear on, and it's actually somewhat cold out, so you're not really sweating a whole lot. It's pretty cozy. Um, so, you know, some days it would feel like putting on your pajamas in the morning. Like, you go put on your rain gear, and it's just like, oh, you know, snuggling in for the day. Um, the one problem I had is my rain gear stunk. And the main reason is that is because I had fillet fish in it. You can only get fish so many spots and let it sit overnight before it really starts sinking. So... Um, towards the end of my time there, I realized I found a very efficient way to wash them. And that was just put them in a washing machine, gentle cycle, hang them up. And I found a fan and I rigged it up um, so that it would dry out my bibs and it would dry out my jacket almost in one night. And that was huge. The struggle was real because if you did not have rain gear for the next day, you were screwed. You would have got soaked uh, just cleaning fish alone. But throughout the day, like you needed to have your rain gear and there was nothing worse than putting on wet rain gear from the day before. So if I washed my rain gear, I made dang sure that it would have been ready to go for me the next morning. Um, and that was really tough to pull off sometimes. So you'd probably wear your rain gear for about a week and it starts reeking like terrible rancid smell. And um, you'd try to get them clean as you could. Uh, sometimes we clean the boat and our ground ends just kind of get more water on them, kind of rinse off some of that stuff from the day. We always sprayed ourselves off throughout the day. If we have blood scales, whatnot on there, um, just to keep ourselves clean. You know, I talked a lot about rough water and something that comes with rough water is puking. And I saw more people puke this summer than I care to ever imagine. Um, we, our worst day, we probably had between 8 foot and 12 foot swells. Um, and then our best day, which I guess really doesn't even matter. It was almost like flat calm. Like it looked like a lake chop. And it was pretty cool to be fishing that day. But most days I'd say we had swells but between 3 and 4 feet, if not a little bit more. And all it really took, took was one good current swing, tide swing, or gust. And they could really change things around. So... We had to be really careful about just making sure clients were okay. Uh, we had to make sure they were not cleaning or puking in the cabin because um, we had to clean it up. And that was a big <laughs> big thing we wanted to avoid. We did not want to clean up puke. And thankfully, only a few times we had people puke inside the cabin. Otherwise, most people were really good at about getting outside. 
uh, and puking at the preferred spot, and that was over the rail. Uh, you know, every now and then you get that person who'd want to hide the fact that they're seasick and they'd go into the bathroom on the boat. And that's about the worst thing you could do because the, the bathroom on the boat was the most like congested space. Like if you're feeling sick, you feel a lot worse going into that bathroom for the simple reason is you're kind of confined in there. Uh, you can't look at a horizon and you're going to feel it a lot worse. Um, if you are seasick, the best thing you could do is get out on the deck Um and just stare out to the horizon, you know, stand up, look around, look out, you know, you do not want to sit down inside the cabin, you don't want to sit down at all, and you for sure, for sure, do not want to hang your head down, or kind of just stare off into something real close, you know, no reading books, no really looking at your phone, like, you really should not do any of that, just keep looking up until you feel better, and that was another thing, too, we did not really have cell service out there too often, um, so from Seward, you go west or you could go east. And if you went east about two and a half, three hours down the line, you got a little glimpse of reception. So you could text somebody, you could, you know, check on Instagram or whatever. Most times we were working, uh, you really couldn't do that. So and then west, you had zero reception whatsoever after you're about 45 minutes out. So we were really spending, you know, 12, 13 hours a day without reception at all which was i know it was nice like i really lost touch of uh what was happening around the world just because of my schedule you know you work 13 to 16 hours a day you still got to sleep you still got to eat you still got to cook you still got to clean um you really don't have any time to check your phone or kind of stay up to date so uh in the last few days i was in alaska i had off and i was you know packing my stuff and i was scrolling through instagram and i saw something it said pray for maui and at that time, I literally had to Google what is happening in Maui right now. And then I realized that it was on fire. And I'm like, oh, uh, well, that is news to me. And it's just kind of weird how you become so disconnected. But at the same time, it's a really nice refresher uh, just to kind of you know cleanse up a little bit, I guess, if that makes sense. Next up, I'm going to talk about my daily schedule, uh, what my daily day I guess looked like I think that's the best way to describe that um, so my daily schedule would be to wake up at 3 55 a.m. Um, I would get dressed make myself something to eat uh, make my sandwich for the day pack my granola bars pack my Powerade grab my monster and kind of pack my bag uh, around what I needed if it was going to be a cold day I had a lighter puffy jacket in my bag uh, ready to go and I always had um, extra drinks. You know, you extra always had extra water on the boat, but you always got to make sure you're staying hydrated out there because you can lose track of hydration really quick out there, and that's not a good thing for us working guys. Uh, you got to stay hydrated, otherwise you're going to get real sore. It's going to get real nasty real quick. Um, at the end of the day, you got a job to do, and you can't really afford to, you know, have something happen because you're dehydrated. It's not, it wasn't a huge concern this year because it was a little cooler out there, but you know, you spend all day in the sun and you're not drinking water. Things go south pretty quick. Um, granted, we were never at, we were never really in any concern of heat exhaustion or really severe dehydration, but it's always something to be conscious of. I, at least I was with my athletic background. I was very conscious of my uh, hydration and making sure I was getting calories in. 
um, because we burned a ton of calories all day. There were so many days we'd go out on the water and we would just literally not stop moving or running all day until it was time to go in and then we'd be cleaning fish. So we were always moving, doing something. We worked hard. Um, But let's continue on with this morning schedule. So we were expected to be down to the boat at 5 a.m. So at 4.45, I would either hitch a ride with one of my roommates um, or I would walk down to the harbor. The harbor was about a half mile away, uh, about a 15-minute walk. It was a really nice walk if it wasn't raining. Um, just kind of, it was your only alone time of the day. Because really, once you get on the boat, you're dealing with your captain and, and your other deckhand. And when you're back at the bunkhouse, you live with a couple other people. And I'll talk a little bit more about my um, living situation later. But I'd arrive to the boat at 5 a.m. From there, we'd get all of our rods out of the lock cabin. So we keep all of our rods, all of our expensive gear in the cabin locked up overnight. And when we first get to the boat, the first thing we do, at least I would do, is I'd go put my sandwich and my drinks and my food in the fridge. Uh, Our fridge didn't work as soon as we disconnected our shore power, which was just kind of keep everything charged up throughout the night. Uh, But once we disconnected, our fridge did not work. So really, I just wanted to keep get stuff in there, get it nice and cold to start the day. And then as soon as we disconnect shore power, hopefully it would stay cold enough for me throughout the day. And it always did. Um, But I go take care of that. And we get rods out on the deck. On our fish box, we had 16, 18, 20 rod holders out there where we could just tuck rods. And then we also, on the top of the cabin on the sides, had rod holders. And then on top, uh, conveniently where I couldn't reach it, we also had rod holders there. So, you know, we take between 16 and 20 clients for a normal day of fishing. And that got really tough because if we're doing a combo trip like for halibut rockfish and salmon per se we would need those salmon and rockfish rods out on the deck with the halibut rods so what we often did is we'd have that first species we would target first we'd have those rods on the fish box ready for us to set out and then the rest of them stowed on top of the cabin um but really that's what the moorings are for you get those out and if you're halibut fishing we would rig up most of our rods with weights leaders um and that kind of stuff we would check our leaders check our sliders which is what the weights are on keeps them kind of sliding around which makes it a little bit nicer to handle the weight with our fish um and i'll talk a little bit more about that later too but just get everything set up ready to go for the day retie any lines uh fix any gear that needs fixing uh you know a lot of times we would have really nasty frays, bent out hooks, rusted hooks, things that needed to be addressed in the morning. We'd take care of them then. From there, we would usually go up and get bait for the day. Um, we would go up to the processor and we would go get bait and, uh, you know, go get a box or two. We really didn't burn through that much bait as a boat, but... Um, that's something you needed, you know, and it really sucked getting it the more the bait the day of because it'd be frozen all day. If we were lucky, we would have an extra box set aside from the day before. And that's what we'd cut into first, because if you have a literal box and a cube of frozen bait, it got really tough really fast to thaw it out quick enough and uh, peel those baits off and then cut them for bait later. And I'll talk about that because before that, 
before we ever talk about or get to cut and bait, we would help clients on the boat. So at that time, we would disconnect our shore power, kind of stow everything away, make the deck look clean, you know, put trash bags, liners like trash bags um, into our cans. And then I would usually stand outside the boat and the other deckhand would stand in the boat and we would just help people onto the boat, make sure they were with us, make sure they're set up, have their license, all that. Um, the captain would then scan their licenses into our daily system, our book system, and um, he would get their boarding pass as well. So our charter ran boarding passes. So uh, they would check into the charter office in the morning, get this little slip of paper, and that pretty much told them, hey, you're with our boat. And then um, it would say how many the party's for. And when we had all of our uh, boarding passes, then we would depart. So once everybody's on board, uh, the captain kind of gives a safety speech. You know, you know, your life rafts are on top of the roof. Your fire extinguishers are here, that kind of stuff. Um, and then we'd be underway. And uh, that was always a good feeling in the day. You know, just getting started with it. And going through the bay because usually the bay was pretty dang calm you know it's about 25 feet long fairly protected from the wind and that was always uh fun especially if it was clear out you could see the mountains around the town and it was always a really good view uh clients really loved it and it was a good time in the morning to kind of you know check it with clients see where they're at talk with them a little bit socialize and start building those connections um we work in the service industry we make our money by making people happy I could not stress it enough um, for anybody considering deck handing. You need to learn how to talk to people, make them happy, make connections. Just overall be a good person that they, you know, feel you want to make them appreciate you. And there's a couple of different ways you could do it. But my, what I did is I just talked to them, you know, uh, a lot of people coming on the boats are from the Midwest. So I automatically had that connection dialed in, ready to go. If they're fishing with us, they probably love fishing or hunting or both. I would ask them about that. Um, a lot of times, you know, people from all over the country, they fish a lot of the same species. For example, bass. Uh, I have a lot of bass fishermen on the boat. And for my background, I bass fish competitively for five years. So it was a really great connection. Just work on those connections. Bam, bam, bam. Um, and then if they tell you their name, remember it. If they don't, don't worry about it. You'll be out there all day with them. You'll be talking to them. I know some clients care if you remember their name, but on our boat, it was never a set standard that you should remember their name, and they never really told us their name either. Um, so that's kind of how that went with clients. During this time, on the way out to the fishing spot, we would get zip ties. Every person on our boat had a zip tie. Every group had kind of like a zip tie genre. Um, so a couple colors combined and you get two tags in your cut cut tag. So a cut zip tie was for your under 28 inch halibut. And this is for halibut trips. Um, you'd always, always only give the person two tags. And that was just uh, for legality reasons and regulations. We had to make sure that every person caught his or her um, halibut. So then we, the second tag would be a full size tag. And that would be for your, for your any size halibut. Um, every person was allowed two halibut. One had to be under 28. One could be any size. So it was really important uh, to make sure that they knew which tag to give us, uh, what the purpose of each tag was, and that those were halibut tags only. Because there were a couple times, um, whether it was me or the other deckhand, if we didn't explain it quite right, 
people would try to give us our, their tags uh, for bycatch, you know, gray cod, rockfish, greenling, what, whatever it may be. They would try to give us those tags. Be like, oh, no, no, sorry. Those are your halibut tags only, you know. Uh, and we had a big bucket full of zip ties of all the colors we used. Um, so we'd say, hey, what's your color? And we'd tag that fish and throw it in the fish box, which was pretty handy to have. Uh, just handy to stay organized like that um, throughout the day. But on our way out, it was probably an average of two and a half hours one way. So if we departed the dock at 6 a.m., which is usually 6 a.m. to 6 30 by the time we left, it was not uncommon for us to show up at the fishing spot at you know 9 a.m. And it would be another you know two and a half hours back. And we were usually back by five or six. But um, before we rolled up to the fishing spot, it was the other deckhand and I's uh, responsibility to get all of the other rods out. Um, so for halibut, that meant usually 16 to 17 rods out. Uh, you need a weights on all of them, baited up. They all had to have baits on them. And uh, we would usually kind of divvy up the load. One person cut bait. You know, we had a 30-pound box of bait. Those were our standard box sizes. We would cut up um, usually the whole box, and then we'd have some chum, too, out of that box. And cutting bait is you pretty much just want to cut a herring, which is usually what was in our, our bait. That's like what 99% of people use up there for halibut bait. Uh, like that's like the standard. Um, that's nothing fancy. That's just the standard get her done hell of a bait up there. So we would cut it in half. Um, just more bite sized chunks, a little smaller profile really helped out because their average halibut was only, you know, 10 pounds, maybe a little bit bigger. So we really didn't want to go to those full size herrings, which could be, you know, almost a foot long sometimes, if not a little bit longer, but we get everything rigged up, ready to go. We'd roll up to the fishing spot. The captain would give a fishing demo, and we would get fishing. You know, you really had to keep an eye out when you first roll out to a spot and people got fishing because there were so many people that just would not pay attention during the demo, and they would have no idea what they're doing, and they could really uh, get something wrong and, you know, hurt a little bit of the gear or cause an issue. That was the main one. They could cause a big issue if they weren't paying attention right, and you know, sometimes that was just what happened. You know, you'd have to walk them through the whole process again. And it wasn't very hard. The The fishing speech could have been summed up as, we're going to drop down this really big weight really slow. When it gets to the bottom, you're going to reel it up three times. And then you're going to watch your rod tip for erratic movement. That's really what it could have been broken down to. Really simple. Uh, but for some people that don't fish or have a hard time paying attention, that was a real, real challenge. But uh, we helped them through it. Every person, you know, you'd have to make sure everybody was kind of on the same page and knew what was going on. And then from there, we'd watch rod tips. And if we were on a hot bite, we usually would be too busy gaffing fish and stuff like that to really be watching rods. But if it was really slow, we only watch rods, which was kind of nice. You know, we watched rods, ran through bait checks, and just made sure that, uh, you know, everybody was having a good time. When the fishing was slow... That was when it was the most important to make connections with your clients um, and kind of make sure that they're not sitting there bored thinking, oh, you know, I got on a shitty charter. Oh, no. You know, like you have to make it fun for them. And a lot of times establishing more personal connections uh, is what kind of did it. And this was mainly for halibut fishing. 
if we started out, if we had a halibut salmon combo, most times you start with salmon fishing. And what that meant was uh, every rod had to be out um, for that. We had to have baits on all of them. And we used different baits. I'll talk about that one one moment. And made sure nets were down, stuff like that. Salmon fishing was one of those things where it was kind of all or nothing most times. Either you're running around with a net faster than you can think, net fish, bringing them in, whacking them, tagging them, throwing them in the box and doing it all over again. Or you're sitting there bored out of your mind, uh, rebaiting hooks the entire time. So for salmon bait, we would fillet herring, um, you know, like what you do with a freshwater fish. You just, you cut down the spine on both sides and then we'd cut little strips out of these fillets. And essentially what, uh, what would happen from there is we'd kind of, we would just single hook them right in the corner of that little fillet or that little strip we cut. And they would just hang down there beneath like a, a soft plastic squid. And then with about, I don't know, maybe an 18 inch liter uh, above that, there'd be a five ounce banana weight. And that's called a moochin rig. Essentially, you drop it down and you reel it back up. Halibut rigs were almost like ridiculously boring. You have a slider, which is about two and a half feet long. And that's where a three pound weight most times can slide freely. And then you have another two and a half foot leader. Actually, it probably wasn't that long, but around that long. And uh, then you'd have hook on the end of that. That's where you put your bait. Salmon fishing was a lot more fun because it was so fast paced. Um, there's something about salmon that I just love. You know, you roll up to a day and it's a salmon fishing day. You're just so pumped up unless it was double halves. My charter, my charter ran double half days. And essentially what that means is we could only go to the very end of the bay at the furthest. And we would have to come back at noon with fish clean. So we had less time to clean fish. Uh less time to clean the boat and then we had to do it all over again so we cleaned fish twice you know we we cleaned the boat twice we rigged up rods twice we cut bait twice um and there's just a lot more i don't know a lot more work involved with those you know double halves and we got paid the exact same as if it was a full day and that really sucked but um you know, salmon fishing was that quick hitter, fast paced, all or nothing. It was very frustrating a lot of times because you'd be watching clients or you'd give them a tip. And this, I guess it's true of all fishing up there. You'd give them a tip. You'd tell them how to do something different. You know, you'd help them out. And people just would not listen to you. Um, I get it. I'm a young guy. Like I just saying this for, for the perspective of customers. I'm a young guy, right? I'm from Minnesota. It's my first season up there. And when I say, when I tell the client, hey, I've been doing this for two months, because they usually ask that. That was a popular question they'd ask. Oh, how long you been doing this? And when my answer was like a month, two months, oh, three months now, they'd be like, oh, that guy doesn't know what he's doing. You know, because a lot of these other guys up there, they've been doing it years. You know, if there's an older captain, he's like, oh, I've been doing it for 40 years. Um, you know, and three months doesn't sound too long in respect to that. But at the end of the day, they simply forgot the fact that I do this every day, almost every day, I should say. <laughs> and that was by far the most frustrating thing with clients is when they would discredit something I'd say. Um, and they just wouldn't listen. 
Heck, it could have been the captain telling them to do something. They would not care or listen. They just want to do it their own way. And then at the end of the day, that was fine. If they caught less fish, which they would, under 90% of the times, if they would not listen to us, they would catch less fish. If they're okay with that, let them catch less fish. You know, you can only lead a horse to water so many times. And when they don't drink, you stop taking them to water. That's how I think about it. Um, that was probably the, one of the most frustrating parts is if you had bad clients a couple days in a row, it just really drained on you. And we had boats where there was nothing but bad clients on the boat. I hate to say it. There were trips like that. Every client, every person on that boat, except maybe a select few, some days, um, you just were like, oh my God, like these people are real. Like bad clients were the bane of our existence on the boats. The bane. And, you know, you have a good day. All the clients are really good. You can have the most fun. It could be a very rewarding job, but not every day is going to be good clients for most charters. So let's talk about our trip offerings now. If it was a halibut only trip, which we did not have very many of, we would go sit looking for big halibut f throughout the morning. And then towards the end of our trip, we would make a run to what people call a chicken hole. And at chicken holes, you can harvest the absolute crap out of smaller halibut. And you fill out limits doing that. We had a lot of halibut rockfish combos. And what that meant is <clears throat> we uh, started the day looking for big halibut. And we really don't have that much time because we have to go catch all of our rockfish as well. So we'd probably go sit for an hour, hour and a half, look for big halibut. We usually would not catch anything. Uh, maybe one decent one, maybe a gray cod, maybe some rockfish, which actually be pretty helpful on a day like that. But then we'd go to the chicken hole, catch everybody's limit, and then we'd go harvest rockfish. Um, on halibut salmon days, we would start with salmon fishing to see if they were biting on the morning tide change if nothing you know we give that maybe half hour 45 minutes we'd bust over to halibut sit for big ones for a little bit if that sometimes if we spent too long salmon fishing in the morning or thought it'd be hard enough to catch our salmon later in the day we would go right to the chicken hole and that was sometimes the most effective way to do it uh, but we'd go get those little fish uh those smaller halibut because uh usually at chicken holes almost every fish is right around 28 inches, which is what your little one has to be, or smaller. Uh, so it's just, it's like uh, fishing for bluegill off the dock anywhere. You know, you have these a ton of these little fish you can catch like crazy. That's pretty much what chicken holes were in the ocean. It's not hard to catch them. It's not hard to find them. Everybody's usually kind of fishing the same chicken holes. Um, where people really got defensive between boat to boat is when people were looking at their big fish spots big fish spots were one of those where everybody's kind of hush hush about where they caught them uh, but chicken holes in under most times were kind of a community thing everybody would kind of go to the same chicken hole if one was firing and that was especially true between companies if uh one company's boat was on a chicken hole and it was doing better than others they would sometimes call in the other boats or that's how that was supposed to go did it always happen like that not really but that's just it's just the way it is, you know. <laughs> um, but uh, other trips we had, we had uh, rockfish trips, uh, usually half-day rockfish trips. When the weather was too bad to go outside of the bay, we would stay in the bay and target rockfish. Those were half-day trips. Those were pretty easy. You just go out and you fish for rockfish. And I should say, 
rockfish rigs look the exact same as uh, salmon rigs, that whole moochin rig with that weight above the little squid. Um, but they were a little bit more uh, heavier line. We use the same hook, but that heavier line was huge because rockfish, they're essentially uh, colorful largemouth bass of the ocean. And their teeth, because they, they were a schooling fish and they were a lot more erratic than largemouth bass, their teeth would fray the crap out of our line. So if we had like a nice floral line on for salmon and we cut a rockfish on it, sometimes it would snap off which would be a bummer, um, and it would fray that line a lot quicker, so we had to go through leaders a lot more often. And then we also had salmon-only days. Uh, a full-day salmon was much more preferable than a half-day salmon, and that was simply because we could get out further, we could catch better fish. You know, the further out you go, the, usually the better the fishing is going to be, and we could actually have a chance of getting a full limit. There was nothing more exciting than taking... You know, on those some of the salmon only trips, we would take 20 to 23 people out some days. Um, more times than not, we'd end up with between 18 and 20. And that was a lot of fun because if 20 people get their out of the bay silver limit of three, you know, that's 60 salmon right there. And then you mix in a couple pink salmon, maybe a couple black cod if you're lucky. And you had a good little pile of fish there. But salmon were by far my favorite fish to fillet. There's something about them that just clicked with me the first time I really took a knife to one. And it only took me a few fish, and I was really dialed. I had fast fillets. I had good fillets. And overall, that's what I excelled at. So if I had the choice, I would always fillet salmon. Um, or I would try to fillet more salmon because it was it was fun, honestly. It was really fun learning a skill, honing it in, and then just being good at something like especially good at something like I just really enjoyed um, excelling in that. It's like, it's like fishing, which I guess it's, we're kind of talking about fishing now, but it's like you spend all this time kind of trying different types of fishing. And let's say you like bass fishing the most and you kind of get really good at it. And then you learn all those really small skills that kind of make it different. And you're just like, you're the bass guy. I was a salmon filleting guy. That was my thing. And don't get me wrong. I could fillet a halibut like there's no tomorrow. I could fillet a rockfish too. But there's something about salmon that I just enjoyed a lot more. And it kind of clicked a little bit more. Um, but those were kind of our trip layouts. Uh, so after we were done fishing, we would pull all the fish out. All of them. There was nothing left inside the fish box. We'd put, bring them all to the back deck. And we line them up usually, clean them all off, and do some pictures. Um, pictures were one of those things where either the client spent a half hour with it or they spent no time with it. It was really weird. It was super hit or miss. Like they'd spend, you know, way too much time taking pictures and kind of messing around, or they would spend about none. And it was kind of awkward. It was weird because we'd be sitting there, me and the other day, Ken would be sitting there waiting we'd be sitting there waiting for the clients to get done taking pictures with their fish so we'd get started filleting them. Um, if we were closer to the bay or closer to the harbor, it was really tough to make do with how much time we had to fillet fish. So let's say we go out on a normal halibut rockfish trip. We probably had right around 100 fish on board for a trip like that. If it was salmon to trip uh, with halibut, maybe it was a lot more. I think the most fish we ever had on the boat was like a, uh, we went out and whacked like a limit of halibut, uh, and a limit of rockfish, and a limit of salmon. So that's like 150 to 200 fish on the boat. And we have 
at the very most three hours to fillet them. But most times between two and a half and two hours. Um, so me and the other deckhand, we had to move fast. We had to uh, fillet fish very fast. You know, we had that table I was talking to you guys about earlier. We had to fillet fish on there. Um, my job was to feed fish to the other guy, um, the other deckhand. He would fillet them, throw them in a bucket, and then if I had a chance, I'd fillet fish, throw them in the bucket, and then it was my job to bag the fish. And that was just pretty much throwing them into like a clear clear garbage bag, so not like a glad bag or anything like that, but like a clear poly bag. And I would do it by color. Um, so let's say blue group. There was, let's say there's four people in blue group. I would put all of blue group's fish together in one bag, and then I'd tie it up or zip tie it shut and I'd put it in there and then I'd kind of keep going by color by color. But my goal was to never let the other deckhand stop filleting. I always had to have fish on the table for him to get at because once you get a rhythm cutting, you really do not want any interruptions whatsoever. Um, and by having a good feeder and bagger, that's what I was since I was the newer of the two deckhands. Um, it's really important to have that guy know what's going on and what needs to be done to keep things moving fast. And that was honestly cleaning fish was probably one of my more favorite parts of the day. It was a time you really had to yourself. Clients would usually go nap inside the cabin or watch us, but it was quiet. You know, we would bring out a speaker and we listened to a lot of good music and we would just kind of sit back and do our thing. It was hard work, but at the end of the day, it was time we weren't interacting with clients. We were just doing our things and we were good at it. You know, we were professionals. We did this, um, you know, a lot of times we were truly professionals, what we did. And a lot of the clients love seeing us work just because it was a skill. So they saw what they saw when they saw me into their deckhand flying. They saw two young men that had developed a skill. And if you know anything about most middle-aged to old people they love seeing young people work because they're convinced our generation is full of a bunch of degenerates that don't work and just sit at home and collect unemployment so they love seeing you know heck even a guy doing trades when i worked concrete old old folks loved seeing somebody like me working out there in the trenches with the best of them they love that stuff and you know those people in alaska there were no exception they love seeing us work and do our things um, there are many times where we get complimented for being so efficient and being fast and being good at what we did. And if you do some every day, you got to be good at it. But at the end of the day, it felt very good to kind of get recognized for that, um, which was it's awesome. But in an ideal world, we would have all those fish done early. We'd have them done, bagged up, ready to go. We'd clean off the boat from there. So whether we had time for a full boat cleaned, in which case we would fill buckets up with water, um, get the brushes out and start scrubbing the boat, everything but the windows, that was preferred. Because if we cleaned the whole boat with soap and water on the way in, all we had to do when we got back to the dock was spray off the fishing rods from the day and then spray off the boat with fresh water. And we were done. Uh, most days it wasn't like that though. Uh, we had time for kind of a spot clean. So you kind of go around the boat, you know, cleaning rails, cleaning blood off, stuff like that. Just doing those things to help yourself out later. Um, the bane of our existence cleaning was rails. That was it. The rails 
were terrible because you had to either hand scrub them or hit them with a softer scrub brush. So we had two scarf brushes. We had a hard brush and a soft brush. And then we also had like handheld scrubbies like uh, Mr. Clean Magic Racers, kind of that size thing. And uh, ideally, you could it was raining all day and you could just hit those rails with a soft brush. But if you really wanted to do a good job, especially on a sunny day, you'd use a scrubbies. But it took up so much time and so much extra effort. And at the end of the day, they look the same either method you use. There would just be less scales on the rails um, if you use a scrubby. At the end of the day, clients never noticed scales. The only person who noticed scales were us, you know, the people that were on the boat every day. So um, it was never it was never really an issue. But it was just one of the things that was, wasn't that fun about cleaning. Everything else was kind of tolerable, uh, not fun. But what are you going to do? It's part of the job. If I go back uh, to Alaska next summer to work again, there's the only company I'd go with is a company that either A, provides a boat cleaner, or B, encourages a boat cleaner. Because you really... that it would have saved us so much time um so when we got back and if we had to you know let's say it's a really sunny day it's actually happened we had 23 people on the boat we got um in the bay which is six silver limit inside the bay a 23 person salmon limit so we had a ton of fish a ton of action and a little bit of time like we whacked the crap out of these fish we got back to the dock, you know, all the fish were cleaned up and we had a mess of the, of a boat because it was sunny. Um, rain was actually preferred on fishing days for us as far as cleaning is concerned because it would kind of wash the boat and keep everything wet. But as soon as that sun came out, any blood, guts, um, you know, anything like that would just stick to the deck and it was really tough to scrub off. So on our worst day, we spent... Um, three hours uh, cleaning the boat, which was terrible. It was awful. And, you know, at the end of the day, that's the last thing you want to do. And I would have paid so much money to a boat cleaner throughout the summer just because it's so worth it. Your time when you're dragging ass for weeks on end, your time at the end of the day, if you can minimize that so by, like, let's say in that instance, three hours, that is huge. Because as soon as you're done fishing, and you're done cleaning, and you're done with the day, right? You're ready to go back to the bunkhouse. You'd go to the bunkhouse, and you'd try to cook and eat as much as you could before you fell asleep. Um, I don't think there was an instance where I fell asleep at the table, but I feel like most days, especially in like late July, early August, when we were really busy, I felt like I was pretty close. Um, you just you had to eat uh, as much as you could, and then you kind of got up and did it the next day. It was a really brutal cycle, and especially being in um, one of those seven-day-a-week periods of the, of the season, it's such a strange feeling to be working and not know when your next day off is. For a lot of jobs around here, you're working five days a week, and you're getting two days off. We're doing something every day, and your next day off could be next week. It could be a month from now, and not knowing that was a really weird feeling, and it just felt like this depressing like spiral um i don't know how to explain it other than that like it just felt it was such a weird feeling it's 
I, I'm having a really tough time describing it, but you just feel like you're in this hole and you can't get out and you can't really do anything. You don't have time to, to sit on your phone in the morning. You know, you don't have time to uh, check your email, like the basic things like you keep putting off your laundry because you don't have time for it, but you got to do your laundry because you know, you're around people every day. It was uh very strange. I kind of went all tangent there, but that was probably like the worst experience was kind of being in that lull you could be you know 20 days in a row deep and if you know that the next day off or then you're you're the tomorrow you know that 21st day you're gonna have off you feel great you feel amazing you're so excited it's like your friday like the best friday in the world because you just got done working 20 days in a row um but not knowing that it's it's a weird feeling um and I know some people are to say, oh, he's just, he's just, you know, complaining now. But that's, I'm just giving you guys the, the unfiltered truth. That's how it felt. Um, with that being said, I am totally considering going back next summer because at the end of the day, being out there fishing every day, it was a ton of fun. Um, it really was. It was a great experience. It was way better than any job I could do around here. And the money was pretty good. And I got a question about that later in the Q&A segment. But... If you want to go out there and hustle and grind, you can have a lot of fun out there. But if you're looking for, uh, if you're doing it for the wrong reasons, right? If you're doing it for the money only, if you go into a thing and it's going to be easy, you might fail. And that's a really unfortunate situation. Um, don't want that to happen. So my living situation was at the company bunkhouse. I was lucky enough to work for a company that did um, offer some sort of housing. I did have to pay rent, so we were really just going to rent in a house. Um, but I lived with five other people, and we shared a house. We had two bathrooms, two sets of washers and dryers, um, two kitchens. It was really nice. We kind of each had our own space, and then we each had our own room as well. So it was kind of like we had our own it was nice, you know, you spend so much time a day with a, with people. It's really nice people kind of go in your own room and have your own time to kind of do things. Um, and then just privacy too, you know, you can always go in your room and usually pretty close to your shower as well. So it was, it worked out pretty slick. Um, I'm going to talk about some of the bycatch that we caught throughout the year. Um, first off, we have link cod. Link cod are those really big ones that I posted on my Instagram um, if you've been following that, they're the really big ones, brown, about the size, almost look as tall as me in the picture. Uh, Lincot are awesome. They have these really huge mouths, and they use them to target salmon, rockfish, and sometimes even little halibut. Uh, we had one one Lincot that had latched onto a, a halibut, and they when they latch onto something, they kind of hang on to it until they get to the surface. Um, so sometimes, if Lincot season is open. You can kind of get a two for one special, so you can catch whatever was on your line, and then you can also catch that link cod too. Um, they're definitely a predatory fish, and they can get huge. Like they can get about as tall as I can, or it's as tall as I am. Um, the ones in that picture were were pretty dang nice. Uh, not any records by any means, but some really nice link cod. Uh, next up, we have gray cod. Gray cod are terrible. Um, it seems like you can get on bites with them where you just can't stop catching them. And they're such a pain in the butt to clean. I hate gray cod. They smell terrible. They poop everywhere. Um, I know some guys 
love them. They're like, oh, they taste good fresh or, you know, oh, it's meat, you know, it's fish and chips, it's whatever. I actually tried Grey Cod because one of the clients didn't want theirs and they gave them to us. So I tried Grey Cod. I gave it its fair chance and I was not, not impressed at all. Um, if I ever go on another charter trip to Alaska, I'm not keeping a single gray cod I catch. And that changes from person to person. You know, I had all sorts of locals and people from all over the world that loved gray cod and wanted as many as they could catch. For me, no. Um, no, not my thing. And I hated cleaning them, and that's probably why I hate them so much. But absolutely one of my least favorite fish up there. Um, and you can catch so many of them. That's what the worst part is. If you caught one... Almost everybody in the boat was going to catch one. It was almost a guarantee, and I hated that. Um, we had some guys that would, you know, want to keep five, six, seven gray cod themselves, and then on top of that, they'd have to ship it home, which never really worked out because if you run the logistics of it, by you're paying a lot of money to ship your fish back home, by the way. Like, you're paying a hefty bill to get all of that poundage from fish overnighted back to the lower 48. Like, that's a lot of money. And if you keep so many gray cod, you're going to end up paying more to ship it back home than you would if you just bought it from a grocery store down here in the lower 48, wherever you live. Um, so it's kind of crazy. Like people really kind of took advantage of that and just kind of went AWOL with the whole gray cod thing. Um, not for me. And, you know, uh, I heard it's like it was one of those years for gray cod. Like apparently this year was kind of nuts for gray cod compared to other years past. And I could definitely see that because the whole probably first month of the year, we had all we could really catch was gray cod and a few halibut, especially when that water was really cold. There was almost no halibut, just all gray cod. And that was kind of unfortunate. And then the water heated up and then this gray cod kind of left. And I was happy after that. <laughs> but uh, um, yeah, next up we have sculping. Uh, we only caught a handful of sculping this year. And they're pretty much this tiny little... 10 inch fish or so um and they're like bright red and they have like cool looking fins on them almost like a lionfish but they're not poisonous or venomous in any way um most people threw them back i uh, they're just one of those kind of odd fish that you kind of catch every now and then but no one really keeps or at least not that i know of um yeah, next up you have greenlings, and we had a lot of kelp greenlings. Um, greenling itself is kind of a family of fish. Ling cod, despite the name, are not part of the, the cod family. They're part of the greenling family. Uh, but a kelp greenling was a smaller fish, probably at the very biggest, like 20 inches in length. I held out my fingers to make sure that was right. I'm like, 20 inches, that seems awfully long. But um, I'd say about 20 inches was, was the very biggest I saw. Um, they are often quite a bit smaller, it's like a foot long. Um, but they're, they kind of hang out where the rockfish do. And a lot of people think the rockfish when they see them, but they have more of like a carp or a sucker mouth, which is a little bit different. Um, like a carp and sucker mouth mixed with like a crappie mouth. Like it was really weird. Um, really weird to describe. People, uh, kept them to eat them. Um, some people really didn't like them, like, it was kind of like one of those things where Greg Cod where some people just like really didn't care about them and some people hated them except nobody really seemed to love Greenling or Cub Greenling. Like there was nobody out there who was like, give me all the Cub Greenling you got, you know, like that was never really happened. 
And then lastly, we have skate. Uh, skate was a pretty much a big stingray that lives in Alaska. It does not have a stinger, but if you have your halibut bait too close to the bottom, you're probably going to hook a skate, and they are awful. They will do laps around the boat and tangle up lines like you would not believe. Uh, they come up like a big piece of plywood that you hooked right in the middle. Like They suck to reel in. They suck to unhook because a lot of times they bend out our hooks, um, and then you'd have to lift up this massive like stingray with the line and unhook it and that was that was a lot really tough really really tough i did not like unhooking skate um and another thing too when you're unhooking skate you needed to have gloves on because if you didn't have gloves and you wrapped your hand around that line you were most definitely going to get a line cut and that brings me to my next point line cuts were terrible um i my hands and my feet had got an absolute beating this summer like an absolute just destroyed um a lot of that was due to line cuts fish biting uh just wear and tear on your hands we use our hands all day every day and they're always getting going from wet dry wet dry wet dry and it just it beats the crap out of them um i remember my first month i would get done with a day on the boat and i would just sit there in the chair back in the bunkhouse and I would just like keep my hands open because I knew as soon as I bent my fingers my line cuts or any like skin cuts I got throughout the day would hurt so bad and they always did um so really until my hands got calloused up on like my fingertips and my finger pads it hurt so bad but by the end of the summer that whole space on the inside of your index finger and thumb my thumb were all calloused up to the point where I couldn't really feel there and my fingertips too so my hands really didn't hurt as much. When I got home and I tried to put a night crawler on a hook, it took me about two minutes to do it because I couldn't really have, I didn't have that much feeling on my fingertips. Now my fingers are back to normal. Um, actually, I take that back. There's a little bit of callusing left on my inner thumbs, but for the most part, it's gone. It's kind of worked its way out. Same with my feet. I had uh, really calloused up feet, and when salmon season rolled around in, uh, in July, my feet, literally bled uh because we did about i want to say three or four trips in a row of salmon fishing and you run when you salmon fish we're when we somebody gets a fish on and we're salmon fishing we run to them to net their fish so we ran it's very fast paced it's a lot of movement and honestly um that's <laughs> that's the worst part about salmon fishing is you're moving so much and you're running and the boots we're using aren't horribly meant for that. And my feet ended up rubbing so much that they started bleeding, uh, which made things a little more painful. Uh, actually, a lot of painful. My feet hurt so bad there for about two weeks straight. And then they also kind of got calloused up. And that's just the way it is up there. You, you get some that hurts you every day and you keep going because at the end of the day, it's probably going to just toughen up or it's going to get calloused up. And that's kind of what happened there. It wasn't too bad as I'm probably making it sound worse than it was, but it, my feet did bleed. Uh, that's just, that's the nature of the game, you know. I think that's all I got for you today as far as my time in Alaska. It was overall a really awesome experience. Um, I miss home a lot. I miss a lot of the freshwater fishing we have here. I miss, you know, my dog, my family, all that. Uh, but at the end of the day, I 
my time in Alaska is something that I'll be carrying around with me for the rest of my life. And I'm really happy that I took the initiative to go do it when I could. Um, I'm just, honestly, you, everybody needs to visit Alaska once. The mountains, the views, the wildlife, the environment, you know, everything about it. It's just, honestly, it's one of the coolest places in the world. And that's kind of what drew me in. Um, the first time I went to Alaska, I loved it up there. I love the fishing. It was just, it was so cool. And uh, at that time, I could never, I I could never see myself living there. Um, I went back to Alaska last summer, and I'm like, okay, I could see myself living there. But then after living there for a summer and doing, you know, working for a summer, uh, I don't think there's any chance I could go up and live in Alaska long term. Like there's just too much I'd miss about home. Uh, up there uh, mainly the, the fishing and hunting opportunity they have some awesome awesome hunting opportunities but really all they have for fishing is uh you know the trout in the freshwater streams and rivers and stuff like that the salmon when they run and then the ocean um their like lake fishing is pretty obscure what you can and can't catch there's not a whole lot of options you know i'd miss walleyes muskies and uh turkeys way too much to to consider it um although i do think i see a future with myself going up there every now and then to kind of visit those people and you know i made a lot of friends when i was in alaska so going up there to visit them going fishing with people that i met and who knows maybe i'll go up for another year and uh and then i'll kind of you know hang up the alaska hat until i can afford to to go there more often but um I definitely see a future of me investing in Alaska, you know, maybe rental properties, uh, you know, Airbnb, stuff like that, lodges. I just think it'd be a really cool opportunity to kind of get up there uh, and have a reason to go up there. You know, give yourself an excuse to go up there, <laughs> if that makes sense. But um, overall, I I worked hard. I went up there and I, I did what I wanted to do and uh, it feels good. You know, it, it really feels good to go up there and accomplish something like that when most people wouldn't have even tried in the first place. And I kind of get that. Um, that's that's about it. Next up, we have the Q&A segment. I posted on my story, I think, last week. Um, a couple, you know, just pretty much saying, hey, ask me any questions. I'm going to answer them on my uh, Alaska recap episode. Uh, all right. The first question, how many times did you see someone shit or puke themselves? Um, in all honesty, a client puked almost every day, at least one. On our worst day, everybody on the boat but about three people uh, did not puke. So that's, I think that day in particular, that was 11 people puked out of the 14 we had on board. That's including crew. Um, and there was probably only five to ten days where nobody puked and those were the beautiful bluebird days but even on some of those some people would puke i did not see anybody shit themselves though uh but puking themselves that was almost a regular day occurrence uh but it's kind of it's kind of funny you do something every day like i never got seasick up there and you know it's kind of it's it's dark humor but it's funny watching people get sick and puke because they would be doing something crazy like reading a book or like staring at their phone and you, you're looking at them. And you're like, oh, <laughs> you're going to get sick. And then they just, you know, 
it wouldn't take long and they'd be puking like crazy. And then once you kind of start puking, it seems like either you puke a few times and you rally and you're like completely fine or you just puke all day. More times though, you'd puke all day. You just sit there, puke, try to like nap or something and then get up, puke, and then just rinse and repeat. You'd, you'd puke all day if you were sick. Uh, the next question is, did they accept your AARP card there? Uh, no, they did not. And that was from one of my friends and roommates, Kobe. He, uh, the, the running joke up there is that I was an 80-year-old man trapped in a 19-year-old's body. And that's simply because I liked Werther's Caramels. Honestly, that's the only reason. Um, you know, you go to the grocery store, you got to get yourself something a little sweet after a long, long work week. And um, my go-to candy was Werther's Caramels. And <laughs> apparently Werther's Caramels are an old man thing, so... Uh, that, that was my running reputation around the bunkhouse is that I was an 80 year old man living in a 19 year old's body. I got another question from, uh, not from Kobe, but from someone else. They asked money, uh, no question mark, no nothing. But what I will tell them is that my daily rate, so I got paid by the day. Um, and then I also got a third of the boat's tips and then I got a very small year end bonus at the end of it. Just kind of, to you know, put a charity on top of the Sunday per se. And I got paid $145 a day. Think about that for a second. If you calculate that out to an hourly of how long I'm working, that's about 7 to $8 an hour. So I really, what I'm getting in guaranteed money was not much. And most days I'd consider that just a prize to show up at the boat in the morning fully functionable. Like fully functioning, there you go, $145. Just step on the boat in the morning. Uh, and most times I didn't even care about that. I was really working for tips. We live off of tips. And that's how I made most of my money was off of tips. Uh, next up, I'm going to cover a couple popular questions I get from clients. The number one question that I got from clients is, how is fishing? I hate that question. I would always say, it's all right. <laughs> that's what I'd say. i say, it's all right. It could be better. It could be worse because fishing up there is so volatile. One day you go up there and you can whack the absolute crap out of them. And the next you might really struggle to catch your limit of halibut. And I hated being asked how is fishing because I'm not going to say it's good because then you're going to have expectations and I'm not going to say it's bad. Sometimes they'll say it's bad, but I'm definitely not going to say it's good. And I'm not going to tell you the truth because it's going to change your perception on how the day goes. So I really hated that question a lot. And I'd always say it's all right. You know, uh, it changes every day. It's fishing. You know, there's no there's no guarantee we're going to go out there and whack them. It is fishing. And I'd say that a lot to clients. At the end of the day, it is fishing. We are out here fishing. We are not catching. We are not harvesting. You, this is a fishing trip. But yeah, that's a, that's a funny one because... Honestly, I I got asked that question at least twice a day, at least twice a day over the over the whole summer. It was very annoying. And then the other question I got a lot is, how did I end up there? Um, so usually the first question you ask somebody is, oh, where are you from? You know, and that's where I was talking about the connections earlier. A lot of people came from the Midwest. So I had that connection kind of in the bag uh, right away. But, you know, they'd be like, oh, you're from Minnesota. How did you end up up here? And really, the story goes, uh, the first time I went to Alaska and came down to Seward in uh, 2019, the charter captain on uh, 
So we went on two charters. One of the charter captains we went with salmon fishing. The other one, other one we went halibut fishing with. And the, the charter captain we went halibut fishing with um, said, hey, you know, when you turn 18, give me a call. You know, you can come up here and work. Uh, and that kind of got the wheels turning in my head about actually doing that for a job. And I never really took it too seriously until I thought about it uh, last year. When I went up to Homer on vacation, I'm like, hey, like I could actually do this as a summer job, you know, between years of college. And uh, I got in contact with that same charter captain and he pretty much gave me a list of names and numbers of people to call, you know, see if they need that can, stuff like that. And I would work my way down the line, got a few job offers, found a place to stay. And that was ultimately the seal right there because uh, it's very hard for a seasonal worker to find somewhere to stay in a tourist town like Seward. Um, so once I found somewhere to stay, I, and I got the job offer, I accepted it. And, you know, a few short months later, I was in an airplane on my way to Alaska to spend all summer out there. And that's about it. Um, you really got to know what you're getting yourself into though. And you got to have an expectation that it's not a vacation you're not going to be doing a ton of sightseeing. You're out there to work, um, and that's really what it was. I, When I got in Seward my first day, I did not leave the town for three and a half months straight, which is crazy because there's a ton of fun stuff to do around in the Kenai Peninsula, but I never left until I went back to Anchorage to fly home. Um, it's kind of kind of crazy to think about. But, yeah, I'm definitely... That's kind of all I got for Alaska. I am definitely interested or I definitely could do a second quick Alaska Q&A if there's something I didn't really cover that well. Um, if there's something that you have more questions about that I could explain better. Um, I might post my story later this week, another Q&A, get a couple questions out there. Maybe do a, a 15 minute podcast kind of recapping anything I might have missed in this um, in this episode. But let's talk about fishing since I've been home. My perception on fish is heavily skewed by all my time in Alaska. You know, uh, a small fish in Alaska is like 10, 10 pounds for a halibut and about, probably about four or five for a salmon. And that's just really tough uh, to have a comparison on. Like I, uh, I caught a 25-inch walleye. Uh, a few days after being home and I just, I couldn't recognize it for what it was. I saw it and I'm like, Oh, you know, it's a good 18, 19 incher. And my dad looked at me. He's like, what? I'm like, Oh, it's, you know, good 18, 19 inch or good eater. He's like, no, no, that thing is way bigger than that. And I'm like, Oh, okay. So we pulled out a tape and it's 25. And I was just so surprised because that's a beautiful fish. Um, it's a beautiful walleye. And I really couldn't recognize it for what it was. Um, the following weekend, I got a 29 incher, which I just posted on my Instagram this past weekend. And that I was super bummed out because I got that fish in the net and I knew it was a good one just because of the way my dad reacted looking at it. I'm like, Oh, it's a, it's a nice walleye, you know, but it was one inch away from being my fish of a lifetime. And I couldn't recognize it for what, for what it was. And that was kind of tough, you know, same with uh smallmouth fishing. You know, I had a, a some nice small moth and I same deal. Um, but that's slowly wearing off. Uh, I went musky fishing on Saturday, um, this past weekend 
That was a weekend of the 9th and 10th of September. And we didn't get any fish. But, you know, throwing those baits, throwing those, you know, we caught a couple of northern pike, uh, stuff like that. That kind of helped out, too. You know, like I got a, a 30-inch northern. I'm like, hey, that's, you know, that's a nice northern. So as my time here, as I keep spending more time here in Minnesota, I'm, you know, I'm starting to get adjusted back a little bit. Now, let's talk about my bow hunting regimen. So, um, since I wasn't able to shoot my bow at all over the summer, and I really want to get out this fall hunting, I spent every morning uh, since I've been here during the week, almost every morning, I've spent it down at the bow range. So, what my current schedule looks like is I wake up at 6 o'clock, I get dressed to go to the gym, you know, throw on an extra sweatshirt because it's starting to get cold now, and... Um, I go hit the bow range, uh, whether I'm sore from the day before or the, you know, the day prior's lift, it doesn't matter. I go almost every day and I go shoot my bow and then I go to the gym. That's just kind of my morning schedule. Now uh, I shoot between 20 and 30 arrows probably in the morning session. And then sometimes I go out for an afternoon session or evening session to kind of depending what the day is, uh, what I'm looking at for schoolwork and stuff like that. But it's a really nice habit to get into, and my shooting has really, really gotten better since I've been back, and I am now really looking forward to getting hunting. Um, I bought myself a hunting saddle, and I'm so excited to, to get out and hunt that thing. This past weekend on Sunday, I uh, took my saddle out for a spin just to make sure I could kind of maneuver everything in the dark, you know, climb in the dark, um, and just kind of find my way around the woods in the dark. And I got my saddle out and I sat my saddle for about three hours in the morning, if not a little bit longer. And I was comfortable. I was, I was truly comfortable. I had a little bit of hip pinch, but that's to be expected with saddles. Um, you know, I'm also a wide guy, so it makes sense. But I saw five deer, um, just scouting out a piece of private land that I had secured earlier in the week. And for me, it was just a way to, you know, check out what's going on, see where things are coming from, see where deer are going, and that's exactly what I did. The season opens up this Saturday, and I am very, very excited to get out there and hopefully kill my first deer with the bow. Um, it's going to be a big challenge. I am well aware of that. But I've put so much time and effort into making sure that I have the best chance of killing a deer. Um, and I really think all that practice and all those hours I spent shooting and shooting and shooting are really going to pay off. Um, I consider myself an ethical hunter. I will not take a shot if there's not a hundred percent certainty in my mind that I'm going to kill that deer. There's no lobbing arrows and or poking at him because at the end of the day, my biggest nightmare is wounding a deer and not being able to recover it or kill it humanely. Uh, there's just no reasons reason to let God's creation suffer like that, in my opinion. And I'm going to do everything I can in my power now to prevent anything like that from happening. That's, uh, that's pretty much all I got. Let's talk about one thing I did forget. Wildlife in Alaska. I saw a total of three moose in my time in Alaska. And it was in my first month of being there. But other than that, when we really got going fishing, I didn't have any reason to leave town so i really never saw too much wildlife um a lot of eagles we saw a lot a lot of eagles um in the bay they would swoop down sometimes and pick up carcasses from behind the boat or kick 
pick up fish that was floating, something like that. Saw a lot of eagles. We saw a ton of humpback whales, especially in August uh, during salmon season. They'd be on the same kind of flat as the salmon were, and they would be doing a ton of bubble feeding. And I have quite a few videos of them uh, either prepping to bubble feed or actually I did not get one of them actually bubble feeding, but it's one of the coolest things, you guys. Um, I'm pretty sure I posted one on my Instagram. And uh, you guys should definitely go check out that video. And that's at Welly Sportsman Show. But we saw a lot of porpoises as well. Um, some octopuses. We got like three or four octopuses throughout the year. And you can actually keep those, which is pretty cool. And then I'm going to backtrack a little bit. A porpoise is kind of like a, a dolphin. Um, but I guess a little bit different. But they kind of serve the same purpose. They school up and they swim real fast. And they kind of do little hops and jumps sometimes. Um really cool and then we saw probably three or four pods of orcas uh throughout the whole summer so we really didn't see a whole lot of them but you really don't want to see a whole lot of them because they will ruin uh fishing bite especially a salmon bite like you wouldn't believe because they'll go through them the, and they will tear up they will just absolutely tear up the salmon uh like you would not believe so we were kind of okay with not seeing a whole lot of those i did see a lot of mountain goats so um there was one particular way if you went east out of the bay in Seward almost every day for the first three months, you would see a mountain goat or a few um, on one particular ridge on the mountain. And that was really cool to see. I uh, I really enjoyed seeing them. For our perspective, they just look like little white or gray specks. Uh, you really couldn't see any detail on them, but it was just, it was cool to see. Um, but all right. I do think that's everything. Um, I will be posting uh, another Q and a little, spot where you guys can ask more questions about my time in alaska and that's going to be on instagram at welly sportsman show in the meantime make sure you guys pick up yourself a new pair of relevant sunglasses because they are the finest scientific solutions for the outdoor enthusiasts and you can use code welly at checkout for 10 percent off your order i just got myself a fresh pair of relevant rangers and those sunglasses are freaking sweet you don't believe me you guys got to check them out relevant.life Thank you for listening, and God bless.